Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. A very warm welcome to all of our listeners today on Behavioral Science Uncovered. Today we are joined by Michel Marichal, and we're going to be looking at his 2019 paper published in Science called Civic Honesty Around the Globe. Michel, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. We're Super grateful to have you with us and for you giving your time. May you please give a brief summary of the paper for all of our listeners who haven't yet had time to fully engage with the material. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So in this study, we want to understand how financial incentives to steal affect uh, people's honesty. And this is a very basic question. However, it's actually quite surprising how little we know about this. And in particular, we know very little about the impact of financial incentives on honesty in everyday situations outside of the lab, and also how robust these patterns are across uh, cultures. And so for this purpose, we conducted a large-scale field experiment in 355 cities and 40 countries all around the globe. And basically, we turned in wallets at the receptions of public and private institutions and then measured whether the recipients contacted the owner to return the wallets. So these wallets contained a key a grocery list and free identical business cards to identify the owner. And everything was designed in such a way that it creates the impression that the owner is the local uh, resident. Now, to study our key question, we manipulated the incentive to steal by varying the amount of money that was in these wallets. And this was either zero or $13.45. And in some countries, we actually even got we went to a higher stake, which uh, condition, which was almost one hundred dollars. So we adjusted, of course, these amounts for each country to reflect differences in purchasing power. So now a key feature of our experiment is that we did not drop these wallets on the streets, but we handed them over to people that worked in these institutions. So these institutions were hotels, banks, cultural institutions like museums, opera, etc. Then we had post offices, public offices, which included police stations, um, agencies, and so on. So the idea behind this is to, that it gives us more control over who takes part in the study compared to other studies where you just rely on passersby to find the wallet and to pick, pick them up. So and in terms of finding, um, the results of the experiment show a remarkably consistent uh, picture. So the citizens were generally more likely to report lost wallets that had money in them than those without money. So in 38 out of the 40 countries that we visited, the, the wallets with more money were more likely to be recorded. So in contrast to what you would expect from a pure economic uh, point of view. And in, in the two remaining countries, these, these uh, decreases were only small and statistically insignificant. So on average, taking all 40 countries, the data from all 40 countries, we find that the likelihood of someone reporting a lost wallet goes up from 40% to 51%. So when we saw these results or from the first couple of countries, we first could not believe it. And from an economic perspective, we are, were convinced We were really convinced that people would steal more if there is more money on the table. 
And we're actually not the only ones who have these wrong expectations. So inspired by the work from Eva Vivald, uh, Stefano Della Vigna and Devin Pope, we asked experts and lay people to predict what would happen in our experiments. And both populations got it wrong and thought that people would become less honest the more money is at stake. So then we tried to dig deeper into the mechanism and uh, to explain these surprising results and conducted additional field experiments and also survey experiments in three countries. And the results from these additional uh, studies suggest that it's a combination of altruism and what we call theft aversion, so an aversion to feeling or seeing oneself as a thief uh, that, explain, uh, that can explain our results. So people are altruistic and care about the harm they do to others. So this can explain why they return a wallet that does not contain any money, but the key that is valuable to the owner. And in addition, we assume that people like and also find evidence that people like to think of themselves as honest persons. So not reporting a wallet that, that does not contain any money it doesn't feel like you're stealing. It's more like you're just a, a lazy person. Um, but when there's money inside, however, it suddenly feels like stealing and it feels more so the more money is in the wallet. So overall, these results suggest that people not only consider what is wrong or right, but that these moral considerations are actually linked to the material benefits of dishonest behavior. So a higher material benefit of dishonesty also increases the psychological or moral costs of a dishonest act. And as our study suggests, these psychological or moral con uh, considerations can sometimes even dominate the material interest to behave uh, dishonestly. The empirical demonstration of these kind of psychological costs is incredibly interesting. And also that both the economist population and the regular population got it wrong. So perhaps the old joke that it's economists that predict things incorrectly, you know, that they predicted eight of the last five financial crises and things. Maybe that, maybe those sort of things are unwarranted. It seems to be in the general population as well. I'd say another thing which is interesting is just the a field study nature of this project you've done. So I know you've conducted former studies with prison inmates on the subject of honesty, but as you alluded to, such experiments are, they, they take place in the lab, perhaps things such as coin tosses or die rolls so as to elicit individuals degree of honesty in a sense this project has much better external validity because you're looking at uh, true behavior in sort of uh, as natural a setting as possible so i'm wondering whether your findings from these previous papers might have inspired this civic honesty project or if you have perhaps other motivations for conducting this research yes yeah, so this is um this is how my previous is how everything started so in fact alain and i were doing a consulting project in the Middle East about 10 years ago or so. And then we also ran some lab experiments where we painfully learned that one cannot just translate instructions and then expect that you can run smoothly run a, an experiment in a different culture. So we faced many challenges and the data did not seem reliable. With one exception, we also asked people to flip a coin. So the coin tossing game or die rolling game you were alluding to. And this is a variant that was developed by Fischbach and Fermi-Hersey and also modified by Bukiol, Piovesan, and then Hauser and colleagues. 
And this game was so simple. The beauty of this game is this, that it's so simple and you can run, run it in almost every possible setting. And so there we actually had reasonable data and we had the sense that people really understood the game. So back when we, we were back in Switzerland, we thought, so let's do a short paper and compare cheating behavior in the Middle East and in Switzerland, and which we never did because soon actually new opportunities opened to run this game in different populations including a maximum security prison in, in Peshwis close to Zurich. And from then on, we got hooked and wanted to better understand honest behavior using all kinds of approaches, ranging from lab experiments. We also used some neuroeconomic studies. And, and uh, we also, because our passion, both Alain and I like to do field experiments, we thought it would be nice to run a field experiment on this topic. That's basically how we got into that entering into this field experiment setting what were you most excited about and what were you most nervous about when you went into this project so it's a bit might sound a bit weird to say but i i somewhat fell in love with this project so it was so exciting to leave basically the comfort zone and step by step expand the scope of the project and so it kind of got addicted. We always got addictive. So we always wanted to go further and further. And you feel a bit like an explorer. And beyond this scientific aspect, it was also very rewarding to lead an extremely motivated team of master and bachelor students who were actually traveling around the world and turning in all those wallets. And for them, it was a great life experience as they were able to travel a lot of countries in a way you would probably never do. And we also created some overlap in the countries that the students visited. So they became friends with each other and still hang out uh, together. I was also nervous about many things, so such as the safety of the students. So they had to fight with natural cat catastrophes like floods, or one also got arrested because the police thought he was a terrorist. But there are also very basic things like just like how, for example, how do you bring a student through customs with a student that has a bag, has whole baggages full of keys and business <laughs> cards, etc., so without raising suspicion. And generally, this was actually one of my biggest worries was that this whole thing would blow up and get uh, become public before we actually finish the data collection. So I was very nervous about, but luckily, this uh, with a few instances, the, this. Um, like the rest, et cetera. So this, this uh, worked out pretty well. With your description of all of the associated risks, it seems hardly fair to call economics the dismal science, you know? It certainly sounds very, very exciting and, as you say, somewhat nerve-wracking. And so these students you referred to, and indeed uh, your co-authors, I presume are affiliated with the University of Zurich, uh, where you currently research and teach. Is this how you were able to join forces and collaborate on this project? How did you go about dividing up research tasks among yourselves? So Alain and I, we met in Zurich in 2007. So I started there as a postdoc and he was doing his PhD there and we shared the same office and this was the beginning of a great friendship. So we spent a lot of time together, not only at work, but also during our free time. So people sometimes also thought of us like uh, uh, conjoined twins. So he introduced me to life in Zurich and we worked out together, went snowboarding, etc. So it was kind of natural that we started to work on the same projects. And uh, so, but from a, from a skill 
diversity perspective, it's probably not ideal because we have roughly the same skill sets. So basically, we can the advantage is we can split up the work easily. So that's not an issue, but you don't have any complementar that much complementarity in skills. And Christian was also doing his PhD at the University of Zurich, and he complemented the team with his technical and organizational skills. And he was key for managing the team and uh, data collection. And then Dave was also Alain's office mate, but for his next job. So when Alain started his postdoc in Chicago, Dave and Alain got become friends. And Dave has a psych background. So he was very important in bringing in the, the psychological perspective. And at first, he actually hopped on a bit later on the project, but he provided very helpful inputs. And at some point, we thought that the co he contributed so much to the project that we should also grant him a co-authorship. So that's basically how uh, this evolved. So in general, I think having people with complementary skill sets is important, but I also think it's important that you like to spend time and have fun with your co-authors because you're going to spend a lot of time with them particularly if you do something large scale like this one. And another thing I like to have with my co-authors is like that I have a large overlap with the co-authors across projects. Because oftentimes you have to prioritize specific projects. And then if you share, if these are shared projects, then it's much easier to decide what to prioritize and what not without running into the risk of, of having conflicts. So that's uh, that's basically how we ended up working uh, together and why also Alain and I have many other joint projects. Oh, that's a, that sounds like a pretty happy and productive uh, relationship, both inside and out of the office. You know, you maybe should uh, get in contact with Michael Lewis. I know he writes books on co-authors like, you know, Kahneman and Tversky and the Undoing Project. Perhaps you could do a piece on it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. So you, you had 17,303 lost wallets, I believe. Roughly half of them contained something like $13.45 adjusted for local countries purchasing power parity. And as you alluded to earlier, some of the wallets had a rather larger sum of money, something close to $100. It seems like a, a lot of money to be putting out into the public domain. And so I'm wondering both, how did you manage to secure these necessary funds for the project? And also secondly, what happens to the money that is returned to you? So the money got actually never returned to us because the reason that was also a design choice because for this to happen, you would need to have real identities or real owners. So if you so you need a real person behind the wallets because they might ask you for identification. Mm -hmm. So that's one point. So it would increase the scope organization of the project uh, massively. And you probably would also would need many more co-authors to do that. And second, also, it's also costly actually to travel then and organize these meetings such that you can actually pick up the wallets. So in the end, it's actually much cheaper if you just consider this as a charity. And we actually, this is also how what we wrote when we received an email, we said that people can just keep it. We thank them and we said that they could keep it or they could donate it to charity. Yeah, so in terms of financing, you're right, it's a large uh, sum of money. So roughly half of the money came from a, a Swiss think tank. Yeah. 
And they approached me for suggestions for a project they could fund. So that was a really lucky situation because they wanted to increase the interaction with the Department of Economics at the University of Zurich. And there were no strings attached. So that's really a fortunate situation, except that they said they would like something that can also generate some media attention. And so that's how we, we got into this project. But we quickly realized that for this to be a scientific success, also we needed to take the project to a much larger scale than we initially thought. So we were started also to look for more money, but this turned out extremely hard. So actually, we were not successful on that front. So no one really believed in the feasibility and also the potential of the project. So we ended up without funds. So I had to use up my entire research budget that I was granted from the University of Zurich. And in addition, the department believed in our project and allowed me actually to go into minus. So allowed me, they allowed me to make debts. And with tenure, I was then able to negotiate those debts off again. So without the generous support of the department, this would not have been possible. Yeah, that definitely seems like a fortunate combination of events. And I suppose the uh, Swiss think tank must have been happy with some of the media attention that was generated by your paper. They had certainly succeeded in that regard, but uh, we'll uh, talk about that a little bit later. But first, I'm wondering about how you selected the countries for your study. Like you say, it necessarily expanded beyond where you first thought you'd be looking at. And I'm wondering, were there any countries you would have wanted to include in your study, but you couldn't for whatever reason? I, I remember I was talking with a friend about this paper and they first joked to me, oh, I'm sure in Japan it was 100%. And I said, well, actually, Japan wasn't in the study. So there are a couple of aspects that go into the selection of uh, countries. And in general, we tried to get a broad uh, representation of countries around the globe. So that was the goal. But we also had to respect a couple of constraints, such as political and uh, health risk for the students. And the interests of the students, that was also one constraint because we were not able to send or force them to go to any country they did not like to. And then also another point was, do we get sufficient number of observations? And we focused on large cities to ensure anonymity of our students and <clears throat> So we had to make sure that in those cities, there were sufficient, first of all, that in those countries, there were a sufficient number of large cities. And also that these in these cities, there were a sufficient number of institutions where we could turn in those wallets. And this is also one of the reasons why we did not have that many countries in Africa. So I would have loved to have a broader representation of African countries. And the issue is that in many uh, African countries, you have one or two very urbanized and large city, but then we typically have, our goal was to have six to eight big cities, but then it gets more difficult to find uh, suitable locations. So these were considerations that played a role here. For Japan, actually, there was another issue there. Japan has a very tight-knit system of, of uh, police stations called the Kanban system. So then the issue was that you could not identify them because people would hand them in because it was so easy to, to, to post those wallets there. They would not, you would not be able to identify where, who actually returned the wallet and, and who not. So that, that's the issue for Japan. Okay. 
And so within these big cities, there were various types of institutions that the wallets were left with, police stations, hotels, post offices. I'm wondering how you selected these type of institutions. Maybe they were common to all of the countries you considered. And also, interestingly, which I don't remember reading in the paper, whether there were any differences in reporting rates among these institutions? So to select the type of institutions, we had three core principles. So first of all, we wanted to have a broad set of institutions. So we wanted to capture public and private institutions. And they should have been institutions that people interact in their everyday life and they heavily rely upon. So that's how we was one principle that we considered for selecting those institutions. Then there are two more technical points. One is that we selected institutions that were able and uh, were available in a sufficient number that were available in sufficient numbers in most countries around the world so that we actually could get a decent uh, sample size. And the third aspect is that these institutions had to have some counter or reception such that they were actually accessible to the public. And then within a specific city, so this defined basically the set of institutions, but then within a specific city, we chose institutions uh, such that or to minimize the time a student had to spend in a specific city and thereby also to minimize the cost of the project. So at the same time, we also tried, that's also one reason why we focused on urban locations. So at the same time, we also had to make sure that there was sufficient distance between those locations because we wanted to avoid that there are any spillovers. And also we tried to choose locations such that they were not right next to a police station so that someone would, that someone would hand it over to the police station rather than reporting to us. So these were considerations we had. Then we also had a couple of backup locations. So in case sometimes these locations were closed or they could not be found. So you have to imagine the students, they prepared all this in advance before they went there such that they could efficiently travel through their travel routes and so sometimes they use the internet google street view uh, maps etc to, to identify those locations but sometimes these locations were closed or did not exist anymore so they had to use backup locations so that's also one thing we had to consider and Overall, these preparations were extremely time-consuming. So actually, the preparation for one country takes about the same amount of time or even more than the actual traveling and handing in uh, those wallets because you have to check opening hours, where those places are. You have to create the maps that the students then can take to travel and so on. So that's uh, a lot of work there. So you also ask about the return rates across mm. different institutions. And um, so actually there's surprisingly little differences across institutions. So there are no big uh, differences. The one thing, only one actually stands out, and these are post offices, which seem to be have the lowest return rates in most countries. Um, but yeah, our purpose of the study was never to really uh, compare these institutions. We chose different institutions just to make it more general and uh, not just rely on one specific type of institution. I remember you said that it was 
uh, altruism and uh, self-image that's driving the reporting rates. And it wasn't whether people were observed. And so I think you were able to control for things such as uh, security cameras and CCTV footage, things of that nature across these different institutions. And you were able to rule that out. Yeah. So what we did is for the students had a survey that they filled out for each uh, location right after they exited the location. And there they took notes of many things like whether there were other people around, whether there were co-workers around, whether they saw any security camera, any security guards, all types of uh, the gender of the recipient and so on. So then we were able to look at these uh, factors and also most importantly, because they report this via email and we also let them record whether they saw a computer on the desk. And these things matter as you would expect. So you see, for example, that if there's a computer on the desk, you're more likely to get an email. If there are other people around, you're more likely, particular co-workers where you can share the burden and maybe also because of the fact that you observe, the, you're more likely to get your wallet uh, back. But one thing we could show is that this increase in the response rate cannot be explained by the presence of others or security cameras or these things, because we see the same pattern even if they're alone and even if there's no security camera around. Okay, well, that's very encouraging to hear that that effect survives even after accounting for all of these other covariates. Coming on to this uh, media retention that we briefly alluded to earlier when discussing the uh, Swiss think tank, I've read some concerns that civic honesty from the study might be underestimated in countries such as China because they don't use email for the communication, uh, which was listed on your uh, business cards in the local language, but prefer other platforms such as WeChat. So now I'm um, wondering what advice you have for future researchers looking to do cross-country comparisons or rankings in order to better account for cultural distinctions and also to avoid potential political or media backlash. So cross-country research is really hard and in my view it's actually impossible to run a perfect cross-cultural study. And the reason is there's always a trade-off between keeping a design comparable and identical across countries and the need to adjust to certain aspects in local conditions and, and cultures. So we had to put a lot of thought into our design and things that we needed to consider. So for example, in some countries, let's say India, for example, names can provide a lot of information about the people's case, for example, cost, for example, or their origin and so on. So we had to take this into account or the grocery list, the content of, on those groceries had to be adjusted to the local taste. But nevertheless, we tried to keep it similar in terms of what types of products these are. So we took those little details into account as good as we could, but you cannot adjust too many things else you lose comparability. So our strategy was not to compare honesty across countries, but to focus on the effects of our treatments that we conducted within each country. So we could hold the cultural context constant and see whether in a specific culture we find a treatment effect. And we used the cross-country variation as a way to assess external validity or the robustness of these treatment effects across the globe. And the question is thus whether the results are specific, the treatment effects are specific 
for a particular set of countries or when they represent a more global uh, phenomenon. And in the main paper, we really tried hard to focus on this treatment effects rather than the cross-country comparisons. So we do not talk except for one or two sentences about cross-country differences and neither do we, did we single out a particular country. But of course, people are able to infer those differences from the data and the graphs. And this is obviously what the press jumped on. And in response, we received very aggressive and threatening emails, mostly from China, Luckily, I was actually in my sabbatical and in one of the most uh, remote places of the world. So I was kind of spared from that uh, until I got home. So my colleagues had to deal with all those issues. And the, the level of aggression was so high that in some cases, actually, we had to inform the police. Mm. And most of these threats actually were related, as you mentioned, to, to China because they scored... Uh, rather at the lower end in, in terms of the level. Not in terms of the treatment difference, but no one uh, focused on that aspect. And the key issue was that in China, people mostly use apparently WeChat and they are less used to communicate via email. And this could explain a lower number of email responses. And I think this is a very valid point. And it probably explains also to some extent the results. But we also conducted additional analysis that suggests that this is not unlikely to be the full story. So for example, we should expect similar results. And if it's mostly about email usage, we should expect that in hotels, where people are used to using emails because they interact with a lot of foreigners, etc., we should see much higher response rates. But this looked very similar. Or we used a measure from the World Bank that captures email usage uh, with, to communicate with customers and suppliers. And also there, this uh, didn't change much. But the point is taken and, and uh, there is no perfect, as I said, there is no perfect cross-country uh, study. So one has to be careful in how one interprets the results. If you're running studies across countries is to implement treatments within countries and actually to focus more on these or those kind of things. Um, but even if you do so, as our example showed, you will not be spared uh, from critique because the press is interested in cross-country differences and that's what, what they're going to push on. So you should be prepared for critical uh, comments and uh, harsh responses. Yeah, in, in spite of some of the deep and nuanced ideas mentioned there, the media seem to love low-resolution solutions to high-resolution problems. So, you know, I remember one, um, one Danish philosopher who I like once said, the lowest depth to which people can sink before God is defined by the word journalist. So, yeah, I suppose these, these are the sort of things that they don't teach you in economics grad school that you kind of got to be prepared for um, when you're entering into the world of research afterwards. Some listeners might be wondering how a behavioral economics piece such as yours ended up being published in the journal Science. So I'm wondering what your path to publication looked like and how you eventually ended up publishing in um, such a scientific journal. So we had, uh, so many people wondered about uh, this. And so we had uh, solicitations from uh, several top journals in, in econ and we, it was a hard decision. So we kept going back and forth in whether we should focus on econ journals or, or on science. And in general, science 
seems is more open nowadays for and wants to publish is pushing strongly for more econ papers and what's nice is also they made some changes so it's now you don't have these formatting hurdles at science anymore that you have to write it exactly in the science format and this actually used to be a science of its own so i've previously written up papers for such journals and that's really a pain just to actually be able to submit all the things that you invest and then if you fail basically you might not even get into review which is the big hurdle uh, with most of those journals and uh, then you have to rewrite it again just to be able to submit it so this changed at science and so you can now write up a paper as you normally would for an economics journal. So in that sense, we didn't have, we didn't lose this. Uh, there was not that great of risk anymore. And only in a second stage, you would then have to adjust the format of the paper once you know it's accepted or it's likely accepted. So the main reason why we tried science first was then that we thought we will be able to speak to a broader audience. And this is a topic that is of interest to a broader audience than just uh, economists. And now most economists are still very skeptical of science and one should be aware of this. And and they would not rank it on par with, with the top five journals. So most of them. In Zurich, luckily, they don't make that this distinction and they focus more on impact and i had tenure anyway so it wasn't an issue for me and in fact it was also for ala and dave it's actually science because they were both not at econ departments or are both not at econ departments science actually counts more than a top five and so that was also influ partly influencing a uh, decision yep so it was a hard decision lots of back and forth and yeah this is how it ended up there I'm wondering whether you would have, if you could go back, whether you would have done anything differently about the project uh, with the benefit of hindsight, which, as we know, is a perfect science. So one thing I think is what I'm a bit is, you know, we have put in that much effort into this project, uh, many years of work, tons of data, my entire research budget. And I wish we could have made more papers out of it. And so we always thought we would write one paper focusing on this surprising result and trying to explain it with a subset of the countries and then maybe a second paper that documents how robust the phenomenon is across the globe. But given that everyone knew that we had more than three countries because we went out pretty early and presented the data, they all wanted to have the full thing. So it might have paid off to be a bit patient in revealing the full scope of the project. But on the other hand, the bigger paper might also have a more impact uh, than a couple of separate papers. So you never know. And another way to get more out of it would have been to implement more treatments. So for example, one thing that's kind of a no-brainer is to vary the gender of the owner, for example. No, we, we only had male owners uh, of these wallets and it would have been nice actually to have some variation there. But this also comes with a trade-off, no? Because then you again need a larger sample size or you 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 make this different cells that you compare smaller and uh, so i think that's the main thing is that it would have been nice to get more out of this project so do you think any of those considerations these unanswered questions about gender of recipients will any of these guide your future research agenda or have you got different projects either in the domain of truth-telling or elsewhere on the horizon 
So there are many questions, as I mentioned, and I think the paradigm is pretty nice because you can manipulate all kinds of things that are in the wallet. So we are thinking of manipulating things in the wallets that appeal to people's self-image concerns uh, or, or other things. And so the, I think there are many variants you could do or the gender, etc. and or look at discrimination. And one issue, however, is that given the amount of press coverage that we received with this project, I would be, at least at the moment, be very worried about people actually realizing that they're part of an experiment, in particular if you use a very similar design. So I've now started a couple of other projects that are related to criminal justice system and crime. So while working on honesty, I got in touch with the criminological literature and realized actually how little sound empirical evidence, particularly causal evidence, we have in this domain despite the fact that most people are in some direct or indirect way affected by the justice system. And in particular, field experimental approaches are extremely rare. So this is where I'm mostly focusing my energy these days. Well, that certainly seems like a worthwhile endeavor. I think the U.S. government spends some $200 billion every year on the criminal justice system. So I suppose research in that area will have some far-reaching consequences indeed. Finally, what would your best piece of advice be to a young researcher who's interested in conducting large-scale field experiments, either in economics or in the behavioral sciences more generally? So as a young PhD student uh, or untenured person, I would probably not embark on a large-scale field experiment like this one. So I embarked on this one when I almost, where tenure was in reach. So because the one thing you want to avoid is to have time pressure for these projects. So what makes sense is you can join a project as a junior um, like Christian did, because you can get a lot of experience and but it's important that you don't have take on full responsibility for such a project. And also you should make sure that you don't rely on this project for your uh, next career steps because uh, of the because these things take time and we often underestimate the amount of time it takes. Now, even if you are uh, interested in doing something like this, I think to succeed, it's important to follow a gradual approach. So we started very low key with a small scale pilot in Finland, where we stumbled upon uh, our surprise with surprising results. And then we optimized the design ex expanded to the UK and Poland with uh, in each country approximately 1,000 wallets. And only then we decided to simultaneously cover several European countries. And in the final step, we decided uh, to collect more European data and also to cover the rest of the world. So we did this step by step, and this was never seen as like one project. It was never clear to us that we were going to have 40 countries. So originally we were thinking of as a goal or would, uh, as for 15 countries in Europe. That was basically what we were thinking of and uh, this evolved very much. Then another thing I think that's important is to be organized 
and to document all your procedures in manuals. So we had manuals for everything. So like how can the students get reimbursed for their travel expenses? How, what do they have to make sure when they pack their wallets with pictures and et cetera? So the, uh, what should they take on that trip and so on? So everything was written down and that also evolved through this gradual approach. So we constantly updated those documents and standardized all the little details that could arise. And this is crucial because so many people were involved. So I think we had around 13 students, bachelor, master students who were traveling around the world for us. And so this helps standardize the approach and also increase efficiency. And another thing is to make implicit knowledge explicit. So for every country, for example, we created chats that were accessible by every person involved in the project, even if they were not traveling in this country. So if someone encountered a special situation, everyone would learn from this and they would know how to deal with similar situations in the future. And then I think the most important part is that it should be a project because this is such a huge investment in time-wise and also money-wise, it should be a project that is interesting and that you can sell whatever the outcome is. So what was nice about this project, I really did not care too much about what we find. And because finding no reaction to money would have been interesting, finding no grunt differences across countries is interesting, or finding the opposite, that people cheat more, is interesting. So we didn't care. And that's really comfortable. So, uh, And I think when you, that's a big advantage if you take a, on a big project like this. But I think this also actually applies to all projects projects, even the small ones, because there are no real small projects and we always underestimate the time and effort that is needed to, um, from the idea to actually publishing uh, something. Well, Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you ever so much for giving us your time and joining us here today on Behavioral Science Uncovered. I'd also like to say a massive thank you to all of our listeners out there. Once again, this has been an episode of Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. And this is your host, Matthew Henderson, signing off.